Hi, I'm Robin Black, and this is Robin Thinks Deconstructing Books That Wrecked Us. As children, we are taught to listen to adults and other authorities. But adults teach us very different things, and we end up trying to operate on very different messages. The older we get, the more those conflicting messages begin piling up until we no longer know what is right or true. Deconstruction is the picking apart of these various messages to understand which ones work for us and which ones don't. In this podcast, I will deconstruct some of the most popular books in Christianity to determine which ones have harmful messages and what those messages are, so you can decide for yourself which ones are worth keeping and which can be thrown away. Okay, so last week we talked about Honey the Circle Maker, which is, you know, the story that this whole book is based on. And I went back and I did a little more, you know, research on this Honey character, like, you know, where did he come from? And as I talked about, Mark Batterson found out about Honey on, you know, page 200 of this really sort of obscure Jewish text uh, called The Book of Legends. Right. And then the title of it should say a lot, which is the book of legends. Okay. So he gets this legend of Honey the Circle Maker. So, on in doing a little more exploration about this Honey guy, I came across some more stories about Honey. Uh, one of which is that he's basically like a Rip Van Winkle that fell asleep for like 60 years and then goes back to his village and his, his son is dead, but he meets his grandson. What's important about this is that Mark Batterson writes this entire book about a, essentially a fairy tale. And one of the things that I talked about in Love and Respect is how Emerson Egricks came across this one verse and he thought about it for a while and then he thought about it some more. And then he developed like this whole entire like philosophy that he wrote an entire book about just from reading a single verse and thinking about it for a while. Okay. I wrote an article for Sheila Gregoire um, for her Bear Marriage blog that I'm going to post and what I talk about in this blog is how how do we know when science seems to contradict the Bible, which one do we go with? And here's the thing. Science is not infallible and our interpretation of the Bible is not infallible. And one of the big problems with people that try and interpret the Bible is that if you don't know your geography, your history, your sociology, your psychology, if you don't know all of these other disciplines, you don't you won't understand the Bible. Okay? Because you can't I mean, you can. There's certain things, yes, there are certain things that you can get from just kind of like a plain reading, okay? But plain readings of scripture can also get us into a lot of trouble. Because for this exact reason, because we read these things and we go, oh, that makes sense. And then we develop like this whole philosophy and then we go off and we read, we write an entire book that potentially millions of people read and then they follow our, you know, advice 
And it's really just something that we just kind of came up with out of our own head. This is exactly why science has something called the scientific method. You know, you, you're, you're thinking about something, right? And you come up with this question, like, I wonder why that is, or I wonder how that works, or I wonder what would happen if, okay? So you have this question, and then what you do is you study like anything that's currently known about that question. Has anyone else already answered this question? Or are there other, you know, people, researchers, scientists, whoever, that have um, maybe touched upon it, but, but haven't quite gotten to exactly where you want to go, right? So the first thing you do is you study all of the other people that have like researched that thing. And then from there, you develop a hypothesis which is an educated guess as to why this is or what this means, okay? And then, and this is the important part, and this is what gets skipped in almost all sort of like biblical study or biblical interpretation is you devise a test. You have to test your hypothesis, okay? And there are actually ways to, to test even biblical hypothesis. What's important to understand is that neither Emerson Egrix nor Mark Batterson employed like good biblical scholarship. Okay, when, when you're talking about biblical scholarship, you also have something similar, which is you have these two, you have uh, eisegesis and exegesis. Okay, and one of them, and I get these backwards all the time, and I think it's eisegesis. One of them is you go into a scripture with a preconceived notion. Okay, or other way around, kind of like Emerson Egricks did, um, you have a certain way of thinking and then you figure out how does this scripture fit in with what I already believe about the world. Okay, that is bad scholarship. The other way is exegesis. And Emerson Egricks attempted to make it seem as if he applied good scholarship because he read this verse and then he thought about it for a while and then he went out and he found a single very shaky study to support his premise. So it's, it's, it's bad scholarship. It's bad um, scientific protocol. It's just bad protocol all the way around. And quite frankly, Mark Batterson did kind of the same thing because he, found this, he finds this really obscure uh, figure from not even from the Bible, it's a legend. It's a fairy tale, which is really just basically kind of, it's like Grimm's fairy tales. Like that's what he's basing this whole thing on. So it, it shouldn't come as a big surprise that there's a lot of problems with how he engages in this. Okay. So in chapter two, I want to read this. He says, when I was a 22 year old seminary student, I tried to plant a church on the North shore of Chicago. But that plant never took root. Six months later, with a failed church plant on my resume, Laura and I moved from Chicago to Washington, D.C. Okay, let's talk about how many issues there are here. First of all, why is a 22-year-old trying to plant a church? You're 22 years old. You don't even know anything about leadership. You have zero experience. You, it's, you have no mentoring. There is no world in which a 22-year-old has any business attempting to plant a church. And by the way, church plants are expensive, okay? So a lot of people, and, and as we should know by now, 
there are rural communities all over the United States that don't have the money to even have a pastor in the first place. And here's young whippersnapper Mark Batterson uh, taking money to go plant a church as a 22-year-old. Okay? Somehow in America, we have completely lost the concept of mentoring or an apprenticeship, right? Throughout most of history, before you became sort of a master craftsman or a master, anything, you had to do an apprenticeship. So spiritual matters literally have to do with life and death. You are trying to tell people how God wants them to live their life. I mean, he's 22. How long has he been married? How is he going to counsel married couples that have been married for 10, 15, 20 years? How is he going to counsel, um, you know, 40-year-old men? It is appalling how many, you know, 20-year-olds, 22, 23, 24, 25. We have these, these children, these children trying to plant churches. And, you know, just as an example of that, look at uh, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, right? Joshua Harris wrote this book when he was 18 years old. And grown men are taking this book and, you know, using its principles to, you're asking their daughters to make virginity pledges to their fathers. That is so sick. And it's all based on a book that was written by an 18-year-old. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with an 18-year-old writing a book but people took this 18 year old book and they turned it into like an entire national movement that affected millions of people so yes I'm going to say that it is a pretty huge problem in America that we think that 22 and 23 and 24 year olds let alone 18 year olds are qualified to actually appropriately handle the word of God that is meant to be an incredibly sacred task that should not in any way, shape, or form be taken lightly. And yet, our whole country seems to think that 20-year-olds are equipped and qualified. So that's the first problem. But here's the second problem. Let me read this. Okay, when I was, 20, was a 22-year-old seminary student, and here's the other thing. He's not even out of seminary. He's a seminary student. He's still in seminary. He hasn't even completed his education, and he's already trying to plant a church. There's so many problems with this. But here we have Mark Batterson, 22-year-old seminary student. He tries to plant a church. He fails to plant a church. And what happens? Laura and I moved from Chicago to Washington, D.C. Okay, so when a 22-year-old tries to plant a church and fails, who pays the price? Is he the only person that pay, pays the price? No, he's already married. His wife is going to pay the price. His wife also has to move across the country with him when he fails, which is just one more reason that a 22-year-old should not be attempting to, to plant a church, particularly when he hasn't even completed the seminary yet. And you got to remember, this is the foundation that he writes this whole book on. This book is written by a man that clearly believed at 22 years old that he was ready to seed plant a church. So then he moves to Washington, D.C., and here we go. There was nothing easy about our first 
year of church planting. Our total church income was $2,000 a month and $1,600 of that went to rent the D.C. public school cafeteria where we held Sunday services. Okay, once again, we have a pretty serious problem here. There are, there are actually a lot of ways to plan a church, but you don't start spending money before you even have money. There are plenty of people that have started churches in their living rooms. And usually meeting in your living room is free. And then when you have 10 or 20 people crammed into your living room, then you can start looking at other things. But before you move into a church cafeteria that you have to spend $1,600 a month on, you see if somebody has a bigger living room or a bigger house until you consistently have 50 or 60 people. And then you start looking. This, I mean, this isn't even good. It's not even a good business practice. It's not a good church planting practice. There's no world in which spending $1,600 a month out of a $2,000 budget just on a space to meet. There's nothing smart or wise about that. Uh, and this is a person that's writing a book telling everybody else, you know, how to how to do what he did. But it's clear that he's, I'm not even sure that he recognizes that you didn't even get off to a good start. He said on a good Sunday, 25 people would show up. Okay, so here we have on a good Sunday, 25 people would show up on a good Sunday, which means that most Sundays he had what? 10, 12 people. Okay, you can fit 10 or 12 people in a living room easily. In fact, um, once you kind of get 10 or 12 people coming steadily, there's a pretty good chance that out of those 10, 12, 15 people, somebody's going to have a bigger living room. So you move to their living room. Okay. Um, that's when I learned to close my eyes and worship because it was too depressing to open them. While I had a seminary education, I really had no idea how to lead. Again, big red flag. How are you seed planting a church? How are you even trying to start a church when you literally have no idea how to lead? These are all things that you need to have under your belt. There is a whole arsenal of tools that you need before you're ready to start leading other people, particularly large groups of people. There are um, administrative skills that you need. You know, you're going to, you need to have good conflict resolution skills. It is very clear he doesn't have any of these skills. And yet he's trying to seed plant a church. And what's even worse is that clearly nobody uh, thought to sort of rope him in and go, hey, bud, you're not ready for this yet. You need some seasoning. You need some experience. You need some tutelage you need someone who actually already knows how to do all these things uh but here he is he's in his 20s he's he's starting a church okay so batterson goes on to say um i felt underqualified and overwhelmed but that is when god has you right where he wants you that is how you learn to live in raw dependence. And raw dependence is the raw material out of which God performs his greatest miracles. Okay, this is such a pile of crap. Okay, the reason that he felt underqualified and overwhelmed is because he was underqualified. There is absolutely no reason that a 23, 24, 25-year-old should be, let alone a 22-year-old, should be out trying to plant 
a church. Okay, a pastor is a person that has to dispense wisdom and wisdom comes from experience, life experience. How do you counsel people that are grieving um, over the loss of a child or um, uh, just, just horrific experiences when you have not ever walked through those experiences yourself? And, 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 and recovered from those experiences. There's a, a Nadia Boltzweber, some people might be familiar with her. She has this great saying that I love, which is, I try to teach out of my scars, not my wounds. And this is really important. First of all, you have to experience the wounds. And then second of all, you have to actually walk through the process of healing from those wounds before you're in a position to be able to dispense wisdom to other people as to how they do that. And one of the big problems is that we, in America, we've completely lost sight of what it actually means to be a pastor. The words preacher and pastor have become synonymous and they are not in any way, shape or form synonymous. At 23, 24, 25 years old, literally the only thing that you have is you have a head knowledge of what the Bible says. You have intellect, not wisdom. Those are two completely different things. Intelligence tells you that there is a problem. Wisdom tells you how to fix it. There are so many skills and disciplines that he needed to have under his belt before he attempts to even try to lead a group of people. And at 23, 24, 25 years old, he needs to be an associate pastor. He needs to be a youth pastor. He needs to be apprenticing under a seasoned and experienced pastor that can actually teach him the tools and the skills that he needs to be able to successfully lead another group of people. Now, at the time that he's writing this book, obviously he's much older and much more experienced, but the problem with this book is that instead of saying, you know, I was too young to be taking this on. I was young, I was stupid, I didn't know what I was doing. Okay, that's fine. Those are all like acceptable, but he's not saying that. What he's saying is, I was right where God wanted me to be. I don't agree with that. I don't think that's true. For one thing, um, when in 1 Timothy, when it talks about the qualifications of an overseer of the church, one of the things that it talks about is, is, being a per, is being a man or woman that your children respect. So to me, we're not talking about children that are two, three, four, five years old, right? They, I mean, they don't, they don't know enough about the world or about you uh, to be someone that they do or don't respect. To me, that means that a child would need to be at least, what, 12, 14, 15, 18 years old to actually be old enough to start to make this determination, uh, is my, are my parents people that I respect or not? To me, when you look at the qualifications for an overseer of a church, uh, age and wisdom are pretty inherent. And those are things that you do not have at 24, 25 years old. So here he is years later, uh, writing this book and instead of saying I was young and I was stupid and I didn't go about this the right way because I was underqualified, he tries to justify it by saying, oh no, that's where God wanted me to be. And this is one of the big problems. This is why books like this get us into so much trouble is because we read these books and then when we encounter difficulties because of the fact that we are actually under qualified. We were literally underqualified. We haven't gone through the steps necessary to actually prepare ourselves 
for the position that we want to take on. We're literally underqualified. And then we read books like this and then we justify it by saying, oh, it's no big deal. This is just where God has me so that God can do a bigger miracle. I don't believe that is in any way, shape, or form in keeping with God's plans for us. I believe that God wants us to season. He wants us to mature. He wants us to experience hardship and difficulty so that we know how to successfully navigate through them so that we can lead other people through those experiences. There's a saying, um, you can't lead people where you've never been which means that it is incredibly difficult for a 23, 24, 25 year old to actually be a leader of other people because of how many places they've never been themselves. How are you gonna lead people up to a place where you've never been? That is so, I'm not gonna say that that is 100% completely wrong, but it, that is very American. That is such a, like an American man mindset. No pain, no gain. You know, the harder people are fighting against you, the more evidence it is that you're doing the right thing. Now, it's not, you know, Jesus had enemies. And so there certainly are uh, some instances in which it is fair and appropriate to say, when you have the same enemies that Jesus has, you're on the right path. I'm not saying it's 100% wrong. But I'm also saying in America, we have way too much of this mindset of, if it's not hard, you must not be doing it right. If you're not, you know, drained and exhausted, then you're not doing enough or you're not working hard enough. We make things so much harder than they have to be. And it has nothing to do with God. It has everything to do with our own ego, our own pride. Like the harder it is, the better we think it is. And, and I don't think, I don't think that's biblical. And once again, if you haven't listened to the episode about Adam and Eve, I, I really highly encourage you to go back and listen to that episode. It's the very last episode of um, Love and Respect, uh, when I was finishing up Love and Respect. Because let's talk about the garden again. And in my interpretation, it's we're trying to get back to a pre-fall condition. We're trying to get back to the garden of Eden. And what happened in Eden is that God gave Adam a task, but he didn't just give Adam a task. He performed a task with Adam. And so it was a relationship building exercise. And what was that task? Adam named the animals. And here's the thing. I don't think that God needed the animals to have names. And God didn't just say, hey, Adam, I want you to name the animals. God brought the animals to Adam so that Adam could name them. God gave Adam a task as a way of building relationship with Adam. The, the Bible says, my God shall supply all of my needs. It says, uh, do not worry about tomorrow saying, what shall you eat or what shall you drink? Okay, just enjoy today, live today, live in the moment, this moment, this present moment. That's literally all you know that you have. You could be dead tomorrow. You don't know. Enjoy today. Whatever, whatever today brings you, the good, the bad, the ugly, whatever it is, just savor whatever the, the good is, you know, deal with whatever the bad is and just enjoy today. Okay, so this idea that God wants us in these like really horrible situation. I just, I don't think it's true. 
I think what is actually true is that sometimes we have to go through really horrible situations before we will allow God to bring us out of them. But what he seems to be saying here is that God wants us in those desperate situations, which I don't think is actually true. I think we don't reach out to God until we get in those danger, into, into those desperate situations, but that doesn't mean that that's where God wants us to be in the first place. It's like, um, you know, a, a lot of alcoholics know you have to reach rock bottom. Like no one else can give you the motivation that you need to do the work necessary to get sober. It's a really brutal journey. So it's a decision that you have to make for yourself. And it's not that God wants you to be at rock bottom. It's that it's that we're we are so stubborn that we will not reach out for help. We will not call out to God until we are in absolutely desperate circumstances. Okay? That's on us. That is that God does not put us in those situations. It's that we won't reach out. We won't cry out to God until we get into it. We are so independent. We are so determined that we are going to, you know, do it ourselves, right? Every, every parent knows what is every, I'll do it myself. Like every two-year-old, right? This starts very, very, very early. I, um, I had a friend who was a parent and he was trying to help his son put his shoes on and his son was about two and his son was having a meltdown because he wanted to do it himself. He said, no, I'll do it myself. And I said something to his dad about, oh, he's at that age, is he? And his dad looked at me and he said, do we ever grow past it? And that was a really good question because it's absolutely true. God, if God is a parent, how many times do we go, I will do it myself. I got this back off. And God will. Like, just like every parent, unless you're, like, really in a in a super, super major hurry, most parents back off, even though they know it's going to take your two-year-old 10 minutes to put their shoes on. Most parents will back off and let their two-year-old take however long it takes to get their shoes on. And sometimes it ends up in a screaming hissy fit because they want so desperately to do it themselves and they can't. And what happens? Instead of just saying, hey, could you help me? They have an absolute, complete meltdown. And by the way, we're not that much different as adults, okay? There's a reason that God calls us the children of God. So um, then he goes on and he says, uh, one day as I was dreaming about the church, God wanted, okay, here's the thing. We need, to, we need to really understand the difference between what we want and what God wants. So what happens, I see this all the time in Christianity. There's this idea that, if I work really, really, really hard and make it happen, it's because God wanted it to happen. Or if I work really, 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 really hard and build this big mega church, um, it's because God blessed it. Here's the thing. Steve Jobs built Apple. That doesn't mean that it was God's will or that God blessed it. Jeff Bezos built Amazon. It's a He has $280 billion. So who knows? I don't know what his, his company's valued at. Um, Apple is valued at $2 trillion. Uh, I don't see anybody claiming that that had anything to do with God or that it was God's will or that, um, you know, Steve Jobs built that for God. Um, same thing with Amazon. All these men build these huge companies that have nothing to do with God. So 
Just because a man builds a great big giant megachurch doesn't mean it had anything to do with God. Doesn't mean that it was God's will uh, that he build this big church. Doesn't mean God has anything to do with it. Doesn't mean God blessed it. Did God bless Amazon? Did God bless Apple? I mean, I don't know, but I don't, I didn't hear Steve Jobs going, oh, God blessed me. And I heard a call from God one day to build a computer. It's no different. Men can build big giant churches, but it doesn't necessarily mean that God blessed it or it was God's will. I think that there is a massive inability in America and, you know, maybe globally and, you know, maybe throughout history. There's a massive, men have a massive inability to understand the difference between their will and God will, God's will. You can look at, look at Steve Jobs, look at Jeff Bezos. Uh, it, look at uh, Elon Musk. It is very clear that men have the ability to build great big giant companies that have nothing to do with God. So if Jeff Bezos can build Amazon, if Steve Jobs can build Apple, if um, Elon Musk can buy Twitter, then it should be a pretty clear indication that men can do pretty big things that have nothing to do with God. So just because you have a big fancy megachurch does does not actually indicate that God had anything to do with it. Really? Um, now, that doesn't mean that God doesn't, doesn't work in the church. God is in the church. God is out of the church. God is everywhere. Um, the Bible says that the heart that seeks God finds him. So... Just because there are people that find God in Mars Hill or in um, the Village Church or all these big mega churches, um, North Point Church, just because people are finding God and God is moving in people's lives in those churches doesn't necessarily mean that those churches were built by God or they were God's will that they be built in the first place. It just means that no mega church will stop God from moving in people's lives that are seeking God. That's, that's all that it means. Um, but he says, I felt prompted by the Holy Spirit to do a prayer walk. Okay. And there again, that might be true, but, uh, Emerson Egricks claimed that God somehow told him all about love and respect and built this whole, you know, paradigm, but just like Mark Batterson, he's like, oh, no, 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 it wasn't me, it was God. And Mark Batterson said, it, was, it wasn't me, it was the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit took this, like, fairy tale of Honey and somehow convicted Mark Batterson to go do a prayer walk around the city. And we're going to talk a little bit about why I don't think that was God, okay? He says, I would often pace and pray in the spare bedroom in our house that doubled as the church office, but this prompting was different. I was reading through the book of Joshua at the time and one of the promises jumped off the page and into my spirit. I'm giving you every square inch of the land you set your foot on, just as I promised Moses. As I read that promise to Joshua, I felt that God wanted me to stake claim to the land he had called us to and pray a perimeter all the way around Capitol Hill. Okay, I'm working on a series right now um, about the TV show Yellowstone and how it relates to the American church. And this is one of those parallels. As we know by now, Europeans came from Europe to a land that was actually already inhabited. And they went in and they basically said, hey, this looks good. I think it shall be mine. 
right? And they drove out all of the people that were already living here. This is called manifest destiny. It's this idea that God intended for us to have this land. That was like the justification by which they, you know, drove out all of the people that were already living here and, you know, made them live on these like little tiny portions of land that basically is what would happen is they go, well, we don't like this land isn't good for anything. We don't like it. You can live here. And then as soon as they figured out like a purpose or a reason for this land or they decided, oh, actually, we need this land. You need to move over there. Right. So we just kept rounding up the original inhabitants and 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 herding them into like smaller and smaller and smaller pieces of land like all the parts we didn't want and um I'm gonna leave another link uh Kyle J Howard was on the bodies behind the bus podcast uh they have they're doing these like alternate week things called at the bus stop and one of the things that Kyle Howard talked about and this is so absolutely true is how if you dig deep below, like all of the absolute worst practices in America, slavery, sexual assault, sexual abuse, if you dig down beneath all of them, um, uh, you know, taking the land from indigenous people, you know, herding them into like little small territories. If you dig down between all, it's greed. It's all about greed. It comes back to greed. And, and the Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's all about greed, okay? And land gives us power. It is territory. It is territory that gives us power, right? So this idea that we claim our territory. And do you see kind of the the contradiction here is when he's saying, oh, God led me out to do a prayer walk, And then he's saying, I felt that God wanted me to stake claim to the land he had called us to. Okay, here's another problem with this, right? What he's talking about here, you know, what he obviously he's 20 years old. He tried to plant a church, right? Didn't didn't work. Then he moves to Washington, D.C. What is he trying to do? He's trying to build a church. Okay, but but what is a church? A church is a group of people he had already begun to like bring these people together okay and that's all a church is it is not a building it is not territory it is not space it is a group of people it is a relationship that is what a church is okay so unfortunately when he is talking about like what he's building here he's talking about space he's talking about land he's talking about territory okay and we already know by now that he's married we need to talk about for a minute what is marriage marriage is a partnership to become one i am yours and you and my i am my beloved's and she is mine or he is mine to become one you're now partners okay so what is he doing he says It still ranks as the longest prayer walk I've ever done and the biggest prayer circle I've ever drawn. He's he's already started and he's got a, you know, on a good Sunday, he's already got like 25 people coming, right? So clearly he's already sort of, you know, done some seed planting here. He's got some people that are coming and he has a wife. Okay, 
So why is he out walking a prayer circle by himself? And remember, this is a book that was written by Mark Batterson all by himself. His name is on it. It's not he and his wife. He doesn't go out on his prayer circle with his wife or with his new uh, seed of people. He goes out and he does a prayer walk by himself. Remember, um, first we have God, uh, you know, bringing the animals to Adam so that he can name the animals. And then what happens? He says, it's not good for Adam to be alone, even though Adam had the animals. Adam had companionship. He didn't have relationship. He just had companionship. And God decided, no, Adam, you need relationship, right? So he brings Eve. Eve and Adam were meant to be partners. And so here's Mark Batterson and he's doing his prayer walk. He's doing it all by himself. And what is he talking about? He's talking about buildings. He says, without even knowing it, I walked right by a piece of property at 8th Street and Virginia Avenue Southeast that we would purchase 13 years later as the result of a $3 million gift that wasn't even a prayer yet. Without even knowing it, I walked right under a theater marquee on Barracks Row, the main street of Capitol Hill, that we would renovate and reopen as our seventh location. 15 years later, these are buildings. These are landmarks. These are, this is territory. None of these things have anything to do with what a church actually is. A church is a body of believers. It is people. It is a group of people. Yet he's out here doing his little prayer walk all by himself, claiming a bunch of buildings in the name of God, even though he doesn't know these are, these are buildings yet, right? He's staking out his turf, his territory, none of which has anything to do with what a church is. And so if you want to know why our churches are such a mess today, this would probably go a long way to explaining it because they're not about relationships. They're about territory and property and buildings. Okay, one of the things that I talked about when I when I did Love and Respect is how um, Mark Driscoll made a very out, kind of outrageous claim that they talked about in the podcast The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. So he was pretty famous for saying that he read a book every single day, a book a day, every day. He read a book, okay? People who are pretty avid readers might read, like, you know, avid but casual, might read about eight to ten books a year, Okay, um, people who are, are pretty avid readers probably read about 12 to 15 books a year, which is about one book a month. If you're a really, really good, solid, hardcore reader, you probably read a book about every two weeks. Okay, but let's just say, let's just say for kicks and giggles that you actually read a book every week for a year, one book every single week for a year, okay? And then you have Emerson Egrick's who um, talks about reading thousands of books. Okay, Mark Driscoll says that he reads a book every single day. So if you read a book every single day, that's 360 books, 365 books in a year, okay? Which means that in order to reach one 
thousand books, like a single thousand. It would take you three years of reading a book every single day to read 1,000 books, okay? If you read a book every single day for six straight years, that would be thousands of books. Most people probably don't read more than about 12 to 15 books a year. Um, but let's just say that you're a super duper high, you know, high volume reader and you read a book a week every single week for an entire year. That's 52 books. Reading 52 books a year, it would take you 10 years just to read 500 books. And that's if you went 10 straight years reading one book every single week for 10 straight years, that's only 500 books. But yet... We have, once again, we have Mark Batterson. I've read thousands of books on topics ranging from spirituality to neurology to biography to astronomy. Thousands of books, just like Emerson Egricks and just like Mark Driscoll. I'm thinking that by now, this should be a pretty huge red flag when men start talking about how many thousands of books they've read because when you do the math it does not add up you would have to be a really serious solid reader to read one book every week for an entire year that's some that's some pretty hardcore dedication right there but you're also talking about a father and a pastor these grandiose exaggerations should tell us something about the men that are writing these books um, he does go on to say, he says, I had a grandfather who would kneel by his bedside at night, take off his hearing aid and pray for his family. Okay, his grandfather prayed for his family. His grandfather prayed for people. And what does Mark Batterson pray for? Mark Batterson prays for buildings and land and territory. His grandfather, on the other hand, prayed for People. So he says, I have a grandfather who would kneel by his bedside at night, take off his hearing aid and pray for his family. He couldn't hear himself without his hearing aid on, but everybody else in the house could. Few things leave as lasting an impression as hearing someone genuinely intercede for you. And that is absolutely 100% appropriate, right? Prayers are something that, that we, we should be praying for. People, not land, not property, not territory. People. A church is, is a group of people. It is a community. It is not a building. It is not property. It is not territory. It is not land. It is not any of those things. And if you want to know why we have so many problems in American churches today, this is it right here. Because, because churches are no longer communities or groups of people. They are land and property and buildings and territory. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go ahead and close there. Uh, just a reminder, I am working on this um, series about Yellowstone. I know I've been talking about it for a little while now. I'm really close to getting it um, done and, and put out. But... Um, if you want to follow me, I'm, I'm going to leave some links on the in the show notes. If you want to follow me on Instagram, if you want to follow me on Twitter, um, I, I'm pretty active on Twitter. I do have a Robin Thinks Pod 
Twitter that I'm really not active on. I probably should be more. Um, if you want to uh, subscribe, I write on Substack and I'm kind of starting to, to build a chat community on Substack. There's so many different options right now and I'm, I'm kind of feeling like a little bit disjointed. I am, I personally am very, very, very active on Twitter. So if you want to follow me on Twitter, I will leave uh, links for that. Um, anything that you can do to help kind of get this podcast out and uh, let people know about it. It would be so hugely appreciated. Uh, right now, I'm really kind of not making any income because I'm I'm literally just writing and podcasting um, So and tweeting. Um, so uh, if there's any way that you could support the show, I would deeply appreciate it. I will leave links to my Patreon. The um, Yellowstone series that I'm working on right now is only going to be available to my Substack subscribers or my Patreon supporters. So if you want to get on, on the um, Yellowstone series that's coming out, um, you can go to my Substack or my Patreon. If you can go to Apple Podcasts and please leave me a star rating and a comment a, a review if this has helped you at all I would really appreciate that um, anything that you can do of that nature just kind of helps um, boost this podcast a little bit and and get it out to more people so thank you so much for listening I really appreciate my listening audience I do get um, private messages from people regularly so I really it seems like this is helping some people I really hope that it is because that's why I do this I I want to help people overcome some of these really damaging and destructive teachings that we were all taught in the church and I, and I was taught these things too so um uh you know if you do find this helpful please help me uh try and get the word out and if you can um support what I do in any way that also would be um super helpful you can support for as little as five dollars a month on either Substack or Patreon so uh thank you so much and I will see you next week